Well, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter, and I'm going to begin this morning a series of sermons through this uh, letter of Peter, and uh, quite often we turn to letters in the Bible, we turn to the epistles or the letters of Paul, but I want us to look at this letter written by Peter, and this morning we're going to look only at the first two verses, 1 Peter 1. Verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And that is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would uh, be with us, that you would uh, guide us and direct us as we turn our minds and our hearts to this portion of your holy and inspired word. We know that it is the living word because it breathes life into us by your Holy Spirit. It is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. I just pray that it would be all of that for us today, that you would use your word by the work of your spirit to give us strength and grace and hope and encouragement in Christ and make our prayer in his name. Amen. You know, whenever you're reading uh, some of the letters in the New Testament, whether written by Paul or Peter or John, it's almost like opening up and reading someone else's mail. You know, these letters are timeless, and they certainly apply to our lives today. But, you know, they were letters written to specific people who lived in specific places and who were dealing with specific situations. Many times those letters are written to deal with particular problems that people were encountering or the circumstances they faced or the questions they asked. And and most of those letters begin the same way. There's the identification of the one who's writing the letter and the identification of the one who wrote the letter, or the one to whom the letters are written, along with usually some word of blessing or greeting. And this letter from Peter is no different. And, And that's where, as you see, that's where we're going to begin this morning, our study of this book. Quite often, if we're honest, we tend to skip over these little introductory uh, portions of these letters, these salutations and these greetings, you know, to get to the real stuff. I would submit to you that some of these salutations and greetings have some significant truths for us, some real spiritual blessing and help. And this portion here in 1 Peter is no different. And so we're going to start this morning looking at this salutation or this greeting we find just two things. We find the identification of the one who wrote the letter and the identification of those to whom the letter is written. So first, uh, we see the one who wrote it. And of course, that is Peter. Now, just to mention the name Peter is to say a great deal. I could do a whole series of sermons on Peter. In fact, I've done that before. He is without doubt 
one of the most interesting and fascinating people in the Bible. Notice how he identifies himself in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was that, one of the 12 apostles that Jesus called, that Jesus mentored, and then that Jesus left to carry on his work after his death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, not only was Peter an apostle, he was one of what we call the inner circle. Peter, James, and John were the three of the apostles who were the closest to Jesus, who spent the most time with Jesus, and who were with him in his most personal and intimate occasions, raising the dead and those kinds of things. Peter, you know, was the spokesman for the apostles. Sometimes, sometimes he spoke before he thought, and that did get him in trouble from time to time. You know, Peter's best known, unfortunately, for his greatest failure. And that's when he denied that he even knew Jesus three times while Jesus was going through his most difficult time of being tried and mocked and ridiculed and abused before Caiaphas, the high priest. One of the most tender moments in the Bible is after the resurrection, when when Jesus got with Peter and he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And three times, Peter was given the opportunity to reverse the course and to say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he restored Peter to fellowship and gave Peter the confidence that he could be useful in the kingdom. And to say that Peter was useful in the kingdom would be a great understatement. Because you see, as you study the book of Acts, you find two primary figures leading and starting the New Testament church. It's Peter and it's Paul. You know, the encouraging thing to me about Peter is that he was far from perfect. Even though he was a man that God used in remarkable ways, he was a man with feet of clay, just like us. And that's why we're drawn to Peter, I think. It's because he was one of us. He, he, he missed the point sometimes. He, he, he put his foot in his mouth sometimes. He was impetuous sometimes. But my, did God use him. And what that shows me is that, you know, God just might be able to use me too. With all my weaknesses, with all my foibles, and all my warts. You know, I look at Peter. He had them. And God used him. I look at myself sometimes and say, well, how can God use somebody like me? And that encourages me. It ought to encourage you to see how much God used this man, Peter, with all the difficulties that he had. You see, God is not looking for people, perfect people. He's looking for willing people. Willing people who will step out in faith and boldly do what he is calling them to do. The one who wrote this letter is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But second, we see the identity of those to whom he wrote this letter. This is what we call a circular letter. That is, it wasn't just written to one church or to one individual. 
It was written to a, a number of different churches. And so it was sent to one church in one location, and they would send the letter on to another church in another location, and then to a, still another church in another location. And, and Peter identifies the recipients of this letter really two ways in these first two verses. He gives us their physical identity, or maybe we might say their geographical identity, and also their spiritual identity. He, he says here that he's writing to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout, and he gives a number of different locations we'll get to in just a moment. The word alien means strangers, people who are living in a land or a place that is not their own. You know, the Bible says that all Christians, we all live as aliens in this world. You see, we, as when we come to faith in Christ, we transfer our citizenship from earth to heaven. We are citizens of a, of a better country, of a heavenly place. And there ought to be a sense in which we feel a little bit uncomfortable in this world. Because we're strangers here. We don't belong here. We belong somewhere else. We're on a journey to our real home. The Bible says we're, we're strangers here. And that's why if you're too comfortable in this world, that just might be a problem. Because we're looking for something far better than anything we have here. But even though that's true for us and for all believers, there was a specific application of this term alien and strangers to those for those to whom Peter wrote this letter. Many of them were literally exiles and strangers where they lived. They've been scattered, many of them because of the gospel, to different places where they lived. And that's why it's sent to these various locations. And he mentions Pontus Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all places north of Israel in Asia Minor, what is now the western part of what we know as Turkey. Well, why do these people reside in these areas? And how did the gospel get to these areas? I want to give you just a little bit of biblical background on these five regions that Peter mentions here and to whom he's writing this letter. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. Which, of course, is the uh, account of the great event on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. As you know, Jews had come from far and wide to attend Pentecost. If you look with me at verse 9, it says there were Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Pontus, and Asia. Three of the very locations to which Peter is addressing this letter are mentioned as being present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and many of them, we assume, some of them were converted and brought to faith. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 8. This is right after the stoning of Stephen, which occurred in Acts chapter 7. 
And Stephen, of course, died as the first Christian martyr. You might remember that Saul was the one who held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. And it's like witnessing that event lit a fire, a raging fire in Saul. His name was Saul at the time. And he became determined to try to exterminate the name of Christ, to persecute the church. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. My assumption is that Saul was a leader of that great persecution. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. That was the first what we call diaspora, the scattering of believers. To this point, the church had been primarily centered in, in Jerusalem. The home church. And God used persecution to scatter the believers. They went to different regions. This was the first really movement north of the church. Out of Jerusalem to different locations. And we assume they went to these locations that Peter mentions in his letter. Then if you look over in Acts chapter 16, just... Kind of an interesting side note, really, to me. You you find some of these locations mentioned again. Of course, now we're in Acts 16. This is after Saul's been converted. His name is changed to Paul. He's on his second missionary journey. He's traveling in Asia Minor. It's interesting, if you look at a map of Paul's missionary journeys, he doesn't go to these areas. He's kind of south, stays south of them, and there's a reason why. Look at verses 6 and 7 of Acts 16. It says, They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, that's one of those the locations Peter's writing to. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not prevent them, did not permit them. And, and so... You know, Paul tried to go to these regions himself. The Holy Spirit allowed him, or did not allow him to go. That's when he got the Macedonian vision. Said, you know, the Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. And he did. And that was the first entrance of the gospel into Europe. Now, we're not sure exactly how the gospel got to these regions. We do assume that some of those who had been Converted on the day of Pentecost, went home to these regions and began to disciple other people, share the gospel. We assumed in, in Acts 8, when the persecution started, some fled, became aliens and, and exiles to these regions where they relocated as believers. Might well be that Peter himself made journeys to these areas to share the gospel. Peter wrote this letter right before the great persecution of Nero that began in 64 AD. And there's a whole lot in this letter, as you'll see as we go through it, a whole lot about suffering as a Christian. A whole lot about trusting God in difficult times. And we assume that God used that in a tremendous way in the lives of his people as that persecution came upon the church and this letter would have been a great means of encouragement to them so that's their kind of physical 
geographical identity. But he also mentions their spiritual identity. It's given at the end of verse 1 and also in verse 2. And when Peter identifies them spiritually, he does so by giving them some very profound spiritual biblical truths. Look at what Peter says into verse 1. Let me just go ahead and read from the start of verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Paul, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered abroad, who are chosen. You realize what Peter is doing here. Peter is beginning this letter addressing the biblical truth of election. Now, I did not say the doctrine of election. I didn't say the theological point of election. I said the biblical truth of election. Because that is indeed what it is. Election is not some man-made idea something that a group of hyper-Calvinists got over in a corner and thought up someday to inflict controversy upon the church. Instead, it's something that is clearly taught in the Bible. Now, what I always say about election is this. If I'm not going to believe in it, then I've just got to tear some pages out of my Bible. And this is one of them. Now, as you know, this has been a cause of great controversy and disagreement in the church. If you want to get some things stirred up in some churches, you just you just raise the idea of election. But notice that Peter does not flinch. He's not embarrassed by it. He's not hesitant in mentioning it. And that's because, you see, it is part and parcel of who we are as believers. Our basic identity as believers is that we have been chosen by God to be his people. You know, God's sovereign love, the Bible tells us, led him to choose a people for himself. In the Old Testament, that people was clearly the Jews. Out of all the nations on the face of the earth, God, in his sovereign wisdom, in his love, chose the nation of Israel to be his. And he made it clear to them. He didn't choose them because of anything in them or about them or because of them. He just did it because it pleased him to do it. That's the way God chooses his people. Out of his sheer good pleasure. If you look back with me at Ephesians chapter 1. This is the verse I put on the front of your bulletin this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. There are five things that Peter says about this great truth 
and verse 2. And I want to briefly mention those this morning. One is, he says that we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, there are many people who come to that verse and try to tone down the idea of God's sovereign choice, a choice that is made purely based on God's own will and pleasure. They maintain that when we talk about God choosing or God electing, it's that God looked down in history, in the future, to see who it was who would believe in him on their own, who would make that decision themselves, then he chose them for himself and as his people. God foreknew who would believe, and then he chose them on that basis. But folks, that's not what the word in the Bible, foreknowledge, means. It means to forelove, to know in a personal and intimate way. And that's the way God knew us from the foundation of the world. It refers to God's eternal choice to save a people from their sins. You see, God knew ahead of time those with whom he would have this special saving relationship. God is sovereign over all of life. You know, if there's one part of this world that is not under God's control, then God just isn't sovereign at all. God either is in control or he's not. And and his sovereignty includes salvation. And that's why Paul or Peter addresses these people saying, you are chosen according to foreknowledge, according to the intimate knowledge and love of God the Father. There's the second thing he says about election here, and it is that it's by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You see, it's the Holy Spirit who applies the electing grace of God to our lives. Election is not just some uh, theological theory that's studied in seminary classrooms and debated among different denominations. Folks, it is election unto salvation. The purpose for God choosing us is for us to be converted, for us to be brought to faith, for us to be given new hearts and new lives, and for us to live our lives for Him. And it is the Holy Spirit who applies in time what God decided. The Bible says before the foundation of the world, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit who sets us apart as God's people. And so another thing he says about it is that its purpose is so we can obey Jesus Christ. The result of election is obedience to Jesus. Now again, this is not some theoretical, theological concept that has no relevance or application to life. We are chosen by God the Father. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit or converted by the Holy Spirit so that we might obey Jesus Christ. You notice how the Trinity is involved here? God the Father chooses. God the Holy Spirit converts, sanctifies, that we might do what? We might obey Jesus Christ. Election is unto salvation. And salvation is unto obedience. How do we know that we have been 
converted is because of the difference that it makes in our lives, our desire to obey God. How do we know that we've been chosen before the foundation of the world? It's because in time, the Holy Spirit changes our hearts and gives us a desire to obey Jesus. You see, we're not just saved from hell, but we are saved to live in obedience to God's word. So another thing he says about election is that through it we are secured by the blood of Jesus. Chosen to be redeemed, to be cleansed, to be washed, the Bible says, in the blood of Jesus. Here, notice what Peter says. We're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. And to be sprinkled with His blood. Jesus came to give His life, to shed His blood for the sins of His people. That's what we read from John chapter 6 earlier. If you go back to John 6 with me, we read that in our unison reading of Scripture. John chapter 6. Let's go back to verse uh, 35. Where Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And he said that in the context of some had seen him and not believed. Verse 36, let's go back to 36. But I said that to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And then Jesus has this word of assurance to his to his disciples, all the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will not certainly I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given to me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus came to redeem all those given to him by the Father. All those chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world. So they might be sprinkled by His blood. Cleansed from all their sin. And brought to saving faith. You see our redemption is not based on anything we have done. But only on the redemptive work of Jesus. And yet another thing that Peter says about election here. Is that as a result of it we receive great spiritual blessings. And Peter mentions two of them here in benediction form. He says, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. You see, as believers, as a result of God's sovereign work, we are in a state of grace. As a result of that, we experience tremendous peace. God chooses us so that we might receive His grace and experience His peace. Now, I gave my sermon this morning the title, Gospel Encouragement. You might find that to be an odd title for a sermon, which for the most part is dealt on the biblical truth of election. But I would submit to you this morning that there is nothing that gives you more encouragement as a believer than that. Because, you see, it puts all the focus on God where it ought to be. I am so relieved 
I am so relieved that my salvation is not up to me. Because if it were, I would still be lost in my sins. I'm so encouraged by the fact that I know that God is sovereign. And that before the foundation of the world, God chose me in love to be his son. And there is nothing, no power on earth that can thwart that plan. You see, it's not that I chose him, but that he chose me. And what a tremendous encouragement that is. I hope you've seen this morning that this great biblical truth is not some cold, foreboding doctrine that leads to some sense of spiritual entitlement or arrogance. Nothing is more humbling. Nothing is more humbling than to know before you were even born, before you had done anything good or bad, God chose you to be his child. Here's a great old hymn by Augustus Toplady, a portion which says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And folks, there's nothing that defines that more clearly for us than the doctrine of election. Salvation is all of God. And aren't we thankful for that? You know, we do believe that God is sovereign. I'll take two extra minutes. We do believe that God is sovereign. And I'm I've been dealing this morning with with God's sovereignty over salvation. That's just one part of life. God is sovereign over all of life. I told Gary James walking as he rode around Louisville Thursday. When God takes a mind to do something, there's nothing. There's nothing. It can stand in his way. We see God's sovereignty in salvation. And we see God's sovereignty in the storms. These tornadoes were no accident. And believing in the sovereignty of God changes your perspective on the events of your life. I was talking to one of the dear, my dear friends whose home is gone. And she said, I walked out the house and I said well God this must be what you want me to do with my house it changes your perspective on life and I want you to be encouraged this morning my message is gospel encouragement and the encouragement is the fact that God is sovereign and in his sovereign he knows you and he loves you and he cares about you and every detail of your life is in his hands so that you might give him praise in all the storms of life you might give him praise and glory let's pray Father thank you so much for your your love for us in Jesus your word is so wonderful its depths are beyond the limits of our finite minds but we're thankful that we can see just a glimpse of of your majesty, of your glory, and the way you're described for us in your word. Oh, Father, thank you that you are your people by your choice, by your grace, by the work of Jesus. 
by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and help us to find great encouragement in that today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.